Hello, and welcome to the second episode of the Thinking Biblically podcast. I'm your host, Justin Paley. And in today's episode, we're going to continue our series on the pastoral epistles. So in the first episode, we gave an overview of what the pastoral epistles were and specifically some reasons around why many modern scholars believe that Paul the Apostle uh, did not actually write these three letters and diving into some detail around those reasons. But in this episode, what I'd love to do is mainly dive into the text themselves and really focus on that see what they're telling us, and uh, see if there are any conclusions that we can draw from it, uh, and give some more concrete examples uh, that are related to a lot of these reasons that scholars think Paul did not write the pastorals. So the first text that I want to jump into is 1 Timothy. And if you remember from the first episode, one of the reasons given that a lot of scholars doubt that Paul actually wrote 1 Timothy and the other pastorals is the more more centralized picture of church structure and leadership that the letters give, as opposed to some of Paul's earlier texts, such as 1 Corinthians or 1 Thessalonians. And so here's a here's a more concrete example of that. Uh, and this would be first starting in 1 Timothy 3. So quote, the saying is short, whoever aspires to the office of bishop desires a noble task. Now a bishop must be above approach, married only once, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, an apt teacher, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, keeping his children submissive and respectful in every way. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into into disgrace and the snare of the devil. End quote. So there's a little snippet of something that very clearly already assumes a sort of church structure where there are bishops as uh, some of these more senior leaders. Uh, the, the rest of First uh, Timothy 3 goes on to describe deacons and their role in the church. And from the descriptions, deacons are, are below bishops in terms of the, the power structure within the church community. But regardless of the specifics, the the central fact that First Timothy does presume this more structured, rigid sort of hierarchy within the church that includes not only leaders, but also has an eye towards outsiders. Note the, the last verse we read there, um, quote, moreover, he must be thought of well by outsiders so that he may not fall into the disgrace and the snare of the devil, end quote. And anyone who has read Paul a lot, especially, you know, quote unquote, his main letters uh, and his most famous ones, think of Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Philippians, Galatians. And in all of those texts, there does not seem to be any sort of concern for what outsiders think of the church. In fact, Paul often has this contrast between those within the 
uh, church community as being this example for outsiders and rejecting a lot of the values and practices that many of the outsiders were actually partaking in. And so there does not seem to be a lot of concern on Paul's part, at least, how a lot of the outside community was uh, reacting to or what they thought of actual Christians living in these these early uh, Christian communities, uh, though I, I use the term Christian fairly loosely since uh, there was no sort of concept of Christian in the sense that we think of it, uh, but rather this sort of offshoot of Judaism. Uh, but uh, that, that's more a question of terminology. But regardless, 1 Timothy 3 big red flag in terms of it dating from the same period as some of these other texts that we, or at least almost all critical scholars believe that Paul wrote. So uh, one conclusion that can be drawn from this is that 1 Timothy was written at a later date, often proposed is late 1st century, early 2nd century, sometimes even as late as mid-2nd century, by which time we do know that a lot of these more formal church structures were actually in place, and these Christian communities had to deal with a lot of the problems that came with that, mainly because Paul, throughout his letters, there certainly seems to be an eye towards, for lack of a better way to put it, the end of the world this sort of eschatological, apocalyptic worldview that seems to be constantly in play. Think of, for example, one one text that comes to mind is 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul is talking about the relationship between uh, a husband and a wife, or people that are unmarried and how they should best approach sexual relations or lack thereof. And essentially, at some point in that text, Paul says, you know, in the end, it doesn't really matter because we're we're not going to be here for much longer. And so uh, if you want to marry and have sexual relations, that is okay. But uh, in my opinion, it's better to remain unmarried as I do, mainly because you don't want to be essentially burdened with the, the cares of life and everything that comes with, with a marriage. Um, so within that, that certainly does not seem to be a, a Paul that uh, thinks the church, as as we think of it today at least, uh, is going to be this established institution because shortly God slash Jesus is going to come back and none of the earthly institutions or practices or really anything about the world is going to remain the same once God comes back and um, executes his judgment and essentially establishes his kingdom on earth. So these concerns do not seem to be present in any of the pastorals, uh, but certainly in a text like 1 Timothy 3, it seems like the church communities have accepted the fact that the world is not going to end anytime soon, or at least it's not a super pressing concern, and that as a result, they have to start to deal with the fact that the church is going to be a lasting structure, and Christians had to adapt and figure out for themselves exactly what the best way to live in the quote-unquote normal world would be. Since, you know, even though these communities might have thought of themselves as cohesive social groups, 
many of these people still were on a daily basis interacting with many pagan or um, non-believing Jews in their daily lives. And a lot of them, probably their families, uh, were all also maybe of a different uh, sort of religious persuasion. Um, but regardless, that's what a lot of people see in First Timothy 3, and certainly that does seem to, to be the case. Now, another text that I want to look at with a little bit of a different flavor is First um, Timothy 5.9, where the author is talking about widows, and this is yet another example of a more presumed cohesive structure. Quote, let a widow be put on the list if she is not less than 60 years old and has been married only once. She must be well attested for her good works as one who has brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the saints' feet, helped the afflicted, and devoted herself to doing good in every way. But refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when their sensual desires alienate them from Christ, they want to marry, and so they incur condemnation for having violated their first pledge. End quote. So... This idea of putting widows on the list, we don't necessarily know exactly what that means, but uh, it would be pretty fair to assume that there is some sort of structured system by which widows would be placed on some sort of list and would receive help from the community, whether financial assistance, whether food and clothing, whatever the case was, there seems to be a formal system for such a practice at least presumed by uh, 1 Timothy 5. And you also have little tidbits of information here, like, quote, as one who has brought up children, and quote, uh, that, again, play into this larger narrative of the, the world of 1 Timothy, so to speak, is one where people are thinking about future generations uh, and how how the church or how the particular Christian community should deal with that in the sense of not only having children, but also what do we do with older people who can't work or those that are widowed or those that are disabled or whatever the case might be. These are problems that are not going to go away tomorrow, you know, in terms of a non-apocalyptic sort of outlook where um, people have to come to terms with the fact that they are going to have to manage their daily lives and that these problems are not going to go away. And so how do we deal with these things as a, a community in a quote-unquote Christian way? Uh, and so the, the author of 1 Timothy and the other pastorals uh, is formulating ways to answer these questions and give some guidance to these early Christian communities through using Paul as an authoritative voice for those teachings. So moving on to 2 Timothy, since a lot of the focus in the, the first episode as well um, was, was on uh, 1 Timothy, I do want to touch on a little bit uh, of 2 Timothy and Titus. So the first text within 2 Timothy that I uh, would want to focus on is 2 Timothy 4, 6 to 8. And it reads as, quote, as for me, I am already being poured out as a libation and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. From now on, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing, end quote. 
So within this passage, this highlights a little bit of a, of a different side of the, the authorship argument. So the text from 1 Timothy, uh, as we covered, point to more of a, uh, a more solidified church structure and different sort of um, general world outlooks. But this particular text in 2 Timothy uh, points to what uh, a lot of scholars call a, a last will and testament. Now, there's a lot of debate over whether 2 Timothy is Paul's quote-unquote last will and testament. Uh, but uh, it's it certainly, if, not, if it's not considered a last will and testament, it certainly has some of the traditional features of a text that could be classified under the genre of last will and testament. Now, this is a well-known uh, sort of more general literary genre uh, that was very prevalent in particularly Jewish literature and particularly uh, Jewish pseudepigrapha. And essentially, it would be someone writing in the name of a, of a great figure. Often in the Jewish tradition, it was a patriarch like Moses or or Aaron, or, or some other equivalent, um, very important leader, and they would be writing as essentially their their dying words and their dying wishes, uh, and thus, you know, uh, such a text, if presumed to actually be written by the purported author, would certainly hold a lot of weight and a, a lot of value in terms of teaching to future generations and giving future generations guidance. And so, Second Timothy, while not uh, a, a sort of quote-unquote traditional sort of last will and testament. This passage certainly points to the fact that Paul, or the person writing in Paul's name, is portraying Paul as essentially uh, facing death. And it seems pretty clear that Paul in this scenario is going to uh, be dead soon. You know, uh, the time of my departure has come. And so that gives a different tenor to the, the words within 2 Timothy and that they hold more weight. You know, this is Paul's you know, final teaching, so to speak. Uh, and that's not something that can just be brushed aside by uh, early Christians or even by many Christians today who um, believe that 2 Timothy are the authentic, uh, the authentic words of Paul, so to speak. And so giving that last will and testament flavor to a text certainly gives it uh, some more authority there. Uh, and so that's another reason why scholars do question the pastorals, in this case, particularly Second Timothy, is that, first of all, um, the a last will and testament is generally an indicative of a, a, a pseudepig... a pseudepigrapha, <laughs> uh, some... Can be a little bit of a tongue twister there, pseudepigrapha, or a pseudepigraphal text. And second, that Paul, even though he, at least in this text, is sort of betraying himself as on, you know, in his last days, so to speak, and might die very soon in the near future, there are other points in the text which don't seem to give that indication, and it seems to be more a reflection of a of a literary device than an actual reflection of Paul's situation at the time. So that's a, a, a little bit of, of Second Timothy and uh, something a little bit different than the, the 
information that we find in 1 Timothy. But lastly, I want to turn to Titus, and specifically Titus 2, as well as Titus 3. So I'll read a little bit from, from each section here. So Titus 2.1 reads, quote, But as for you, teach what is consistent with sound doctrine. Tell the older men to be temperate, serious, prudent, and sound in faith, in love, and endurance. Likewise, tell the older women to be reverent in behavior, not to be slanders or slaves to drink. They are to teach what is good so that they can encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be self-controlled, chaste, good managers of the household, kind, being submissive to their husbands, so that the word of God may not be discredited. End quote. Now, Titus 3, 1 reads, quote, Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show every courtesy to everyone. End quote. So, here in Titus, we get more of a, a flavor similar to what we find in 1 Timothy. In Titus 2, in that, in that passage, again, the author of, of Titus seems to be presuming this less apocalyptical sort of worldview in the sense of the Titus is exhorting believers on, on how it is proper to behave um, through the medium of, of Titus in, in this particular case. So basically telling Titus says, hey, Titus, you are the founder, such leader of this community. Tell the people that this is how they should be acting. Now, this is not necessarily out of the ordinary for Paul. Certainly in all, all of his letters, there is a, a large part of the text that is devoted in some way, shape or form toward telling people how they should behave. So in a, in a very stripped down sort of uh, perspective, the fact that this text does have some of those behavioral guidelines it is not a red flag in and of itself. What is, uh, what is more of a red flag is just the way that it is phrased and the, the groups that they focus on. In the sense of, in, to take Titus 2 as an example, tell older men, tell the older women, um, again, bringing up households, and then again, at towards the end there, quote, so that the word of God may not be discredited, end quote. So again, with this view towards outsiders and how this is going to play in the minds of um, people outside the community, which again, is not necessarily indicative of non-polling authorship, but taken together, it does seem to be a text that presumes more of a late first, early second century setting rather than the more apocalyptic, um, more organic sort of church communities that we glean from Paul's other letters. And in Titus 3, again, again, another taste of that. Remind them to be subject to the rules and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, etc., etc. Um, so again, with this eye towards how are we going to function as Christians, as a community in quote unquote, you know, the normal everyday world, and how are we going to navigate the really difficult problem of being a Christian in a, a predominantly non-Christian world 
especially when it comes to stuff like circumcision or eating meat sacrificed to idols. These are things that for us in the present day might seem um, either absurd problems or at least problems that are not very major. Um, but these are things that uh, that not only Paul and, and other important early Christian leaders like, like Peter and James, but also normal everyday people would have had to contend with. Certainly circumcision, a constant theme in Paul's letters, particularly Galatians, but also very prominent in Romans and Philippians, etc. Uh, and that was a real constant problem in terms of whether Gentiles had to be circumcised. And relatedly, meat sacrifice to idols was also a big deal, particularly for Paul, because he was the quote-unquote apostle to the Gentiles. And so his main audience and the people that he was going to trying to evangelize and, and convert were, uh, by and large, pagans. And so they were used to this idea of sacrificing meat to idols. If you went to any sort of public celebration in the Greco-Roman world, uh, or even somebody's private household, there was this expectation that meat or some other sort of, um, what would be the right word, sort of performance of, of rites, so to speak, would be performed by essentially sacrificing something to what you know Paul describes as as idols, as something that is not representative of the true God, and that a, a Christian or a believing Christian cannot um, willingly participate in such things. Now it's interesting when you go to a text like First Corinthians, where uh, Paul is touching on meat sacrifice to idols. I believe it's First Corinthians eight. Uh, he tackles this this question heads on in the sense of, you know, don't be worried if you as a Christian go to eat at a non-Christian's household. Don't worry about whether the meat was sacrificed to idols. But if you do, uh, if for whatever reason, you do know for sure that it is meat sacrificed to idols or the host directly uh, specifically tells you so, then, then you should object. But Essentially, we get a glimpse of what the pastorals are touching on in the sense of Paul is trying to walk this fine line of recognizing that these pagans, basically all their friends, all their families, all their business associates, and just the general uh, duty of being a good Roman citizen or part of the Roman Empire constantly involved things that would bring up issues that could be offensive to um, uh, to, to Christians, so they wouldn't have considered themselves Christians in, in that sense, but to believers. And that's, that's really the crux of the problem. Uh, and it's really interesting to see how Paul navigates that in 1 Corinthians. And essentially what he arrives on is, you know, as, as I just touched on, um, don't don't do it if it's sort of obvious and really in your face, but also don't worry about it and don't refuse to go to somebody's house just because, uh, you know, the, the meat might be sacrificed to idols. As long as you're taking away Thanksgiving and that you're not actually harming the, the, the faith of another, of another Christian, uh, then it is it is perfectly okay to, to, to participate in that. Uh, and it is not a sin. So, 
it's it's you know not necessarily making a a concession, but it is again a little glimpse into how early Christians had to be fluid in how they handled some of these problems because some of them were just inevitable. It was impossible to be a, 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 a recently converted pagan. Um, but yet shun everything else in your life, your business dealings, your families, basically your everyday activities. Uh, and that's even before getting into, you know, what um, would later become even more of a problem, um, this idea of sacrifices to the emperor. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of really fascinating history behind that and a, a lot of the, the the problems and conflicts that that sparked for Jews and and then early Christians, but that's definitely a conversation for another day. But so in this episode, you know, we really, again, only scratched the surface, but I hope that some of these um, more text-specific examples um, give some more um, meat to the bone uh, in terms of trying to understand why a lot of scholars don't think Paul actually wrote the pastorals and that they're not the product of a a mid-first century um, uh, atmosphere. Now, in the next episode, in in final episode, uh, we'll cover, now that we've touched on the pastorals, some of the introductory issues around authorship, touched some of the specific texts, in the last episode, I'd love to, to wrap things up just by taking a more bird's eye view of the problem, touch a little bit on uh, exactly who may have written the pastorals and why, even though we've touched on some of that already. Uh, And also in addition to that, touching a little bit on the potential implications of it uh, and just thinking over why this question matters in the first place or why it is worth studying and thinking about. Uh, So I hope you will join us for that. Thank you.